Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, you know, quite a, an opportunistic founder that has been traveling, you know, all over the world. I think that you guys are all going to find his story, you know, unique, you know, remarkable and, and also very inspiring. So, you know, again, you know, talking all the stuff that we like to talk about, building, scaling, you know, financing, exiting. You know, he had a really remarkable exit, too, that we'll talk about. But without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Brian Rickworth, welcome to the show. Alejandro, thanks a lot for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. I mean, it's always nice to have people that know how to pronounce my name, you know, very well. <laughs> you know, that's that's not the case always. But but Brian, here, what I'd like to do is I'd like to do a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in California? Life was really, really, you know, I, I grew up in a in a very kind of supportive household, you know, I'd say kind of middle class, upper middle class. Uh, my dad used to joke that I'm going to have to claw my way up out of the upper middle class. Uh, so I had a comfortable life. You know, I, it's a life of privilege for sure. And but really, definitely my parents instilled hard work in me. And that was something that, uh, you know, they, they made me work for everything that, you know, that I got. And that was something that was you know critical. But it was a small town, 7000 people, Northern California, kind of like a little bit of hippie, you know, uh, hippie town. And uh and so, yeah, I grew up in a, in a small town. I was ready to see the world at, at some point. 
And and in your case, Brian, I mean, something that I find incredible is the way that throughout your life, you know, you've been totally okay with dealing with uncertainty. And that uncertainty to be able to reach whatever opportunity that you had in front of you, you know? And uh, I guess, how did that come to you? I mean, did you have people in your family that were, you know, entrepreneurs, um, you know, business driven? How did that come to you? If I think about the influence that I had from my parents, you know, my mom was a kind of more of a, a, you know, social, you know, impact, someone that was really involved in the community and did a lot of things, you know, kind of helping others almost in some degree, you know, just really selfless in the way that she, what she did. My dad was an entrepreneur, had a, had a small uh, local business paving company. So I'm kind of this juxtaposition, this, you know, combination of, uh, I like to think uh, both of those qualities. And so very supportive, very, there's a lot of times when I think, and now that I'm a parent and I look back and I, you know, I think about the way they navigated my uh, comfort with not really knowing what I was going to do or, you know, like certain things around my path that looks like, oh, that doesn't look like it's headed in the right direction. You know, for example, I ended up studying, you know, Spanish. That's why I can say your name where like, you know, they just never pushed me in any direction. And they were very, they were very good at promoting whatever I was passionate about. And then they knew that I would figure things out from there. And so that's something that I try to, uh, you know, extrapolate from the lessons I had as, as a kid and try to bring that to my kids where I foment and, and help them develop the things that they really love and are passionate about. So I think that enabled me to be comfortable with uncertainty. And, and out of all things, why Spanish? Why did you study Spanish? You know, it was one of the only things that I was like, I felt like in school, I took a Spanish class and I had a great Spanish teacher, uh, Miss Winters, shout out to her if she's listening. But I remember I just felt like I was really good at it and I, and I, and I, and I understood it really well. And I wasn't much of a student. And so I wasn't thriving in the traditional education model. And so I ended up just deciding, and, I, and also I love travel too. And so, and I love communication. And so if you take the, you know, the, the combination of being able to communicate and being in another place, it opens up this world of opportunities for you where your, your horizon expands and you get to learn about different cultures. And that was always something really fascinating to me. I had a, a professor in college uh, that used to always say, lengua es cultura, language is culture. And so I realized that if I could learn the language, I could learn the culture, and then I could expand my kind of understanding of the world. That's incredible. Now. Talking about implementing, you know, Spanish. I mean, once you, you're done with it, you know, you decide to pack up and, and go crisscrossing. You know, they're in Latin America for six months. I mean, that, I'm sure that was wild and full of incredible experiences. But, but what triggered that and, and, and tell us what happened? I remember, you know, having a conversation with one of my best friends, uh, you know, and we, we, you know, we just finished college. And it was this kind of moment where, you know, when you're in college, it's kind of, you know, you're going to college, you get that question time and time again, like, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to be? And, and it was the moment where there was like this period of forgiveness on like, you've got an open window where you don't have any responsibilities. You know, you've got kind of this, this blank slate of what you want to do with your life. And so I, uh, yeah, I took advantage of that and wanted some adventure. I was craving adventure. I was cra craving to be thrown into something completely different and be exposed to something different. So as you said, I got in my car in California, El Burro Blanco, the, the white donkey. It was, a, it was a Nissan Pathfinder. And we just, we drove south. And we, you know, crossed over in, in Matamoros in Texas. 
uh, you know, and, and, you know, on the Texas border. And we just started heading south. And it was just every day was an adventure. And, you know, I, I realized kind of on, you know, it, early on that trip is that when you put yourself in new situations, it kind of forces you to learn. And, it, and that discomfort, you know, that moment of being somewhere where you, you know, maybe don't fit in perfectly, it just forces you to figure things out. And so uh, that was uh, the motivation was really just adventure seeking and, you know, and, and, and also wanting to see the world and just the, I guess, an undying curiosity is something that I, that I think has been a motivator for me for a long time. And obviously, you know, like as part of that journey, you know, it ended up with a very successful outcome. And that was, a, you know, ending up, you know, like meeting or, or being, you know, with who is now your wife. Uh, and during this time, also, you ended up becoming an English teacher. So it's a very interesting journey, uh, becoming an English teacher and, and really taking it all the way to becoming an entrepreneur. So what were the sequence of events that needed to happen in between? Well, first of all, I met my wife, uh, Andrea. She's from Colombia. And we met in San Diego, in, in, in California. And we dated. And she went back to Colombia after she finished her, you know, her semester there, her work experience. And so I, you know, I got, I got in my car and, I, and my plan was to make it all the way to Patagonia uh, when I set out on that trip. And so after crisscrossing Mexico for, you know, five and a half, six months, I got to Costa Rica and I, and I bought a one-way ticket. Uh, with the you know the goal of you know just checking out and see see what things were like in Colombia, seeing her, and I got to Colombia and you know we and you know we were we had dated before this for you know for for some time, and so I I, I got there and I realized just how much I fell in love with the Colombia as a place and obviously fell in love with her, and so that ended up we ended up getting married about a year later, and you know when you're living in a new country you, you know, you've got to figure it out, right? You, you, there's not that many options for you. And I had, I had done some studies in, in Spanish, you know, I, I studied Spanish and Portuguese in my undergrad, which everyone thought that I would become, you know, a, a Spanish teacher with that. And so when, when I heard that feedback and I'm like, you know what, no one will hire me to do anything because I don't have any business background. I don't really have much work experience. I'm 22, 23 years old, but I do know how to speak English. And I realize a lot of people want to learn English. So I went, ended up going to this trade show uh, it was a, for books, and I found a business English book, and I went and bought that book, and that became this kind of syllabus, and I literally knocked on doors on the main avenue in Bogota, Colombia, just trying to pitch my, my, my classes. So um, that was my first, wasn't my first, first foray into entrepreneurship, because I'd done many things as a kid, uh, you know, like classic stories of, you know, selling candy and I had a, I taught swim lessons to, to kids in my neighborhood. I always had kind of a hustle and, uh, you know, that was kind of part of my upbringing. So I always had this entrepreneurial DNA from a very early age, but the circumstances forced me to figure out how to make some money. And so I did the only thing that I was able, you know, I knew how to do, which was, and I wasn't a very good teacher in the beginning. I realized that one thing is speaking the language. The second one is helping people understand how to, you know, how to develop the language uh, skills. And so I did that for a little while and quickly realized I was a shitty teacher. So I ended up hiring another teacher and that I would just go sell the classes and he would teach. And that was how I financed the, uh, you know, the beginning of my, my journey as I kind of wanted to pursue my next opportunity. And I think, you know, I can talk a little bit more about the evolution of what I did next, but all of those opportunities usually come from just a pain that exists, right? And, or an opportunity that you identify uh, on your journey. So yeah, those were the first uh, days the way I, I paid for my 
paid my way and, uh, and was able to continue and extend my stay into Colombia. Nice. Now, in your case, you know, there was a, a really tough experience finding, you know, a real estate property, you know, which really, you know, was a, a really big, I would say, uh, diving board for you to jump into, you know, what would be the next opportunity that you had in front of you. So what, what, what happened there? Yeah, I remember, you know, I was looking for a property and just to kind of date me here, I pulled up the newspaper because that was the only place there was real information about real estate, open up the classifieds, contact a real estate agent that there was a, an ad. And I ended up meeting this real estate agent in a, in a cafe in Bogota. And, you know, we sat down, I explained what I was looking for, told them that I was looking for, you know, an apartment in this kind of in this area. And the agent proceeded to pull out a physical paper out of their briefcase and they, they slid it over the table and they said, the property you're looking for is on this, on this list. And so I thought, great, well, let's go, let's go take a look at, you know, some of these properties. And they said, no, no, that's going to be, it was like 10 or 20,000 pesos, which sounds like a lot of money to the international uh, listeners. It was, it was about 10 bucks or something at the time. And so what happened is this agent was actually charging me to see information. And I was in kind of a desperate place. I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll open up here on your podcast. When I first got to Bogota, I was looking for the cheapest place that I could stay, right? And in the US, when you, you're looking for an inexpensive place, you go stay at a motel. Now in Latin America, a motel is something a little bit different than it is. It's not a motel six in the US is not a motel in, you know, in Latin America, it's basically a place that you rent by the hour. And so I actually checked in to a shitty motel, felt kind of like this, something was weird about this place. When I went and checked out after that, I realized that, that it, the price they gave me was by the hour um, because, you know, and, and, and so it was, it, was a, it was a wake up call for me. And then that basically planted a seed said, okay, I got to figure out my shit here. I got to get, get it together and find a place to live. And so you know, fast forward, I'm, I'm sitting with this agent, I'm a little bit desperate, you know, I've got to, I've got to find a place because I was in this, in this crappy uh, motel. And, you know, that when they wanted to sell me the information, I was kind of desperate. So I just paid them the money. And when I shelled out the money, and I got the list, I, I spent the entire day looking at these properties. First one too big, second one already rented, third one, you know, not in a good location, wasted my entire day, and that was a moment of frustration for me where I asked myself, there's got to be a better way. And so that was the, I'd say the genesis of realizing the problem set that I wanted to go after because I'd suffered as a consumer. So then what happened next? You know, coincidentally, I ended up finding a case study from Mercado Libre, which was a Stanford case study. And it was a kind of light bulb went off and, and, and it, I realized this is a huge business being built in Latin America. And one of the values that they have is they have all this inventory in one place. It had a lot of kind of classified elements. And so given that there was no place where I could see all the inventory, it was, it was a seed that was planted, you know, let's go out and try to aggregate all of these properties into one central marketplace. So I went out bootstrapped you know, we, we, uh, we, we, uh, you know, I, I skipped a lot of, uh, steps in the story, but just for the, the purpose, cause we could make this thing multiple hours, but I had been building websites and doing translation services on the side, um, you know, kind of post the, the English cl uh, classes. And that was kind of financing my, my life. 
And I took some of that money and I started, you know, building, you know, with a, a co-founder, which coincidentally is a funny story. You know, I don't know, you know, these co-founder stories, how you meet, you know, it's kind of like, you know, how do you meet, uh, you know, your, your wife or your husband, you know, pure serendipity, but we were both overstaying. I had overstayed my visa in Colombia. So I was at immigration paying a fine and he had, had entered the country uh, because he had the wrong stamp. And so given that I had these English classes, I had one student that wanted to learn German and I saw his passport and it was, it was a German passport. And so that was how I ended up engaging with him. Turns out he had a background uh, in technology, uh, you know, building websites. It was, it was the early kind of early mid 2000s. So anyways, that's how we ended up kind of pairing up on this. And, you know, and me having had that experience looking for a property uh, was kind of the the first, I guess, moment of realization or aha moment that's like, oh, this is a big opportunity. Uh, we should try to solve this problem. And so that's when we came together on it. So what ended up being the business model of Vibarel? How were you guys making money there too? So the business was kind of a, initially a kind of a classifieds 2.0 where, you know, it's so ridiculous to think back to this time. You know, I'm sure your listeners are, you know, that maybe if, if they're a little younger, they'll just be blown away. But the way it works in the classifieds is you would literally have to pay per word in the classifieds because there's limited space, right? So this is, you know, enter the internet. It's like there's an unlimited amount of space. You can have 100 photos. It's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's possible. And so the way we made money and the kind of immediate innovation that we had is that all of our existing competitors, they had this kind of classifieds model where they would just charge per property to put your property on their website. And one thing that I realized was, and I thought about the value as a consumer, the real value for me is show me every piece of inventory because that's going to enable me to make a better decision and compare offers. And so there was a resistance and friction point that didn't serve the consumer because they were charging really high price per listing. And so agents had no incentive to upload all of their listings because they would have to pay more money. And so we came into the market and we decided to offer kind of a, a, an, an all-you-can-eat package, if you will, where it's like fixed price, give us all your inventory, because we understood that once you got enough inventory, you'd hit an inflection point and you would you know, be able to give good, you know, good information. So we had a monthly fee that we would you know, charge per, per real estate company, and they would list all their properties. And then on the consumer side, you know, it was very challenging in the beginning to try to get people to put their properties on because you have that chicken and egg problem, right? It's like, what comes first, you know, the properties or, you know, or the people searching for properties. And we understood that we need to get more properties. So in the beginning, we couldn't convince anyone to put their properties on because they realized we didn't have any properties. So what we did was we actually, um, you know, we, we did two things. The first thing we did and fast forward, uh, I should maybe make the, the note that we ended up expanding the business to Brazil because when we we launched in multiple markets and then we just looked at the numbers in Brazil and it was just much larger. And so we decided to you know, narrow our focus and go AAB all about Brazil. So I had a, a co-founder, another co-founder that I'd met in Argentina, and he was on the ground in Brazil and we were building the tech in, from Colombia. And I remember trying to get these first listings and Diego, my co-founder, he would send me a list of all the real estate companies and I would cold call them in my broken Portuguese uh, that I'd learned, you know, from, from the university. And I would basically say, hey, I'm calling. I want to speak with the owner. 
And they immediately thought this American guy probably wants to buy a property. So he would write me a script that says, when they say this, say this. When they say this, say this. And so I was able to get, you know, between my broken Spanish, Portuguese, and English, the owner of the property online. And then I would basically offer to put the properties online for free. Um, and so that was kind of how we first got the initial properties. But we, we didn't have a huge smashing success because it was too slow. And so the, the next reflection we had was, how can we just really automate this as much as we can? And I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. And so we ended up building a robot that went in and scraped all of the listings and then injected those onto the website. And then that was a, kind of a turning point for us where we ended up providing you know, a better resource for consumers because we had a lot more inventory. So those were the early days of you know, getting that initial traction going. And at what point do you guys realize, I think we're turning around a corner here. I think we're into something. I remember very clearly, it was, it was, I think it was June, 2010. And we had, we had uh, put these first properties on our, on the website. And then we, we just, let's see how it goes. We, we started generating traffic. We started showing up in Google. And I remember six months later, about six, seven months later in December, December 15th, my co-founder shows up to these offices because we had given them a six month free trial. And we didn't even literally had no data about how many leads we generated. And there was just no information. And, you know, they were doing it for free. So we kind of just showed up to their office blind, hoping that we had generated value. And I remember Diego, you know, walked in and said, hey, we're, we're doing great, right? It's, it's a great service, right? Kind of just like took a big gulp. And to our surprise, both of the customers we met in the same day, they were just over the moon about how amazing it was. And that they wrote us a check on, on the spot for the entire next year. And so when Diego called me after the first meeting, he's like, hey, we got, you know, $2,500, you know, in the bank prepaid for the year. And then two hours later, we got another $2,500 in the bank, you know, for, for next year. It was a $5,000 day. And it was the absolute confirmation that we were onto something because we just did the math. And we're like 40,000 real estate brokers, you know, across Brazil. Um, you know, if we can get all their inventory and we can get them paying, you know, something every month. Uh, we're going to build quite a large business. And so uh, that was the aha moment where it was like, okay, we're onto something. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you'll want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Chris. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the Wingman your sales needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. 
This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast growing business. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. And in terms of uh, capitalizing the business, you know, uh, obviously different market and, and you know, the, um, the, the VC, you know, perhaps uh, segment was not as developed as, as it is today. So how did you guys go about capitalizing the operation? In the beginning, the old-fashioned way by just trying to get revenue, because in in Brazil and in Latin America, mind you, there was no venture ecosystem. I think I could count all of the VCs on one hand. That that's literally where the the ecosystem was at the time we started. And you know, I didn't have a track record. You know, I was a foreigner living in you know in Latin America, wasn't super networked. Didn't go to Stanford, and so in the beginning, we just kind of bootstrapped. And I ended up raising a little bit of friends and family money from you know uh my college roommate who i got to give him a shout out he you know he built a business when we were in college and he sold that business when he was 27 years old made a bunch of money uh he you know he knew me we had lived together he knew you know he knew i was kind of a crazy person that was going to figure this out and so he wrote me a pretty irresponsibly large check of $250,000 you know in the very early days of the company and we scraped together some kind of family friends uh, money and the turning point for me from a capital standpoint i had another investor who was the ceo of the of the at the time the largest real estate marketplace business which was based in australia a guy by the name of simon baker and simon baker had scaled this business called rea group um and it was you know it was a billion dollar business that he'd built and in the same kind of similar business model and so i had cold messaged him, you know, and I, and I had, I was, I was sending everyone on LinkedIn a message, you know, very generic messages. Don't do that. If you're listening and you're a founder, you know, write a well-crafted message, show that you did some research first, but I finally, it struck a chord and he responded to me. And I remember it was on Facebook and he, he got back to me and I had said, Hey, I see you're going to be speaking at a conference. I'm going to be at that conference in San Francisco. You know, of course, I wasn't. I just said I'm going to be there, and if he responded, I would just go there. I show up. We had, a, you know, had we had two meetings, and I remember distinctly the, you know, this time we were just starting. It was very early, and I, I, you know, I met him at a, a cafe, and I pitched him the whole business. I memorized a bunch of data about the market size, and and we went into this this conversation, and he was diligently taking notes the entire time, you know, kind of nodding, you know quiet, but just very, very attentive. And at the end, he said, so Brian, what's what's the raise? How much are you looking to raise? What's the valuation? And again, I took that big gulp of nervousness uh, because it was my first time fundraising. And I, 
as confidently as I could, which probably wasn't that confident at the time. I said, we're, we're trying to raise a million dollars. And I think I told him it was a $6 million valuation. Now this is in, you know, late, you know, it's like 2009 real estate crisis. Like, you know, the, the real estate market is just explode, you know, it's, it's blowing up. And I remember he looked at me, looked back at his notebook, looked at me again. And he said, yeah, I think this, this meeting is probably over. Just shut me down. And, um, you know, and, and he kind of, you know, politely, you know, said his pleasantries and went on his way. And like a very, very rookie founder and first time fundraiser, Alejandro, I literally called him like an hour later. He didn't pick up the number, the phone. And I left him a message and I'm like, hey, maybe we could do 4 million, you know, like just totally rookie, did not know what I was doing. What happened is uh, he did not end up investing at that moment, but I would send him a message every month. We closed Century 21. We closed this customer. We're, we're, we now got this traction. And after about two years of completely harassing him, he ended up writing a, a, you know, a nice check into the business. And more than the money, it came with a incredible playbook and, and helped us with a roadmap because as part of his cash, I negotiated some advisory where he would come down to Latin America and spend time with us. And the knowledge was extremely valuable. So it, was, it, was, it truly was smart money. And then the second order effect was that it provided credibility for us, right? Because when you're starting out, who's going to believe in you? And, and is this person, are they credible? And the credibility of building a billion dollar business in the same sector as us in another market, all of a sudden enabled me to bring on other investors and then things kind of, you know, tip from there. Obviously, you went through a merger too prior to the acquisition, but the the whole entity prior to the acquisition from OLX, how much, you know, was the total amount of money raised? We raised about 70, 74 million into the business. Okay. And that was through multiple rounds of, you know, of, of you know, fundraising. We, we raised a, a Series C in 2014. So from first capital in, you know, family, friends, you know, that, that was very early and that was just scraping by for a couple of years. The first external capital from like a professional investor, this guy, Simon, and, and then a guy by the name of Greg Waldorf, who was one of the first investors in Trulia, that was in 2011. Um, and in fact, it's, a, it's an interesting story because we were running on fumes. In 2011, you know, I, I, I'd never I'd taken a salary. Uh, it was June, July 2011. And, you know, I remember just literally getting physically sick because we had June 2011, we had $87 in the bank. We had 20 employees. And I didn't know where my next dollar was going to come from. You know, my, my, my roommate from college was financing it. My dad was writing a, you know, six, $7,000 check a month. And, you know, we're in, you know, we're in tough, tough economic times in 2011. You know, everyone was like, I, I can't keep, keep this thing afloat. And so literally in the, you know, minuto 92 del juego, you know, and, 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 and the injury time, um, I, I, uh, I was able to get Simon, you know, to write, uh, I think he wrote a $300,000 check and just saved the company. And it was like the most just, you know, just taxing thing as a founder to be able to, you know, not know if you're going to live. And uh, so when that wire came through, I, I definitely did a dance. That's amazing. No, I can't imagine. That was a hell of a dance, I'm sure. Now, in terms of the, um, 
you know, because prior to the outcome with the uh, OLX, you know, with that acquisition, you actually did a, a merger. So you combined Viva Real with, with Grupo Zap. How was that merger and why, why did you guys orchestrate it that way? And then how did that lead you into the acquisition with OLX as well? So just to paint a picture for, for you and the audience, here I am, we're an attacker in an existing market where there's incumbents. The two primary incumbents, and there was, multi, there was, you know, there was 10 players at one point, right? It was a very, very crowded market, but there was two very well-funded players. Uh, just to set the stage here, one of them was owned by Brazil's largest media company. And frankly, you know, they, they kind of own all the media in Brazil, TV, radio, newspaper. And so they had this massive megaphone and they had got an early start in their business. And then the second player was a company that had been around, you know, 10 years prior to us, uh, backed by Tiger Global, uh, Riverwood Capital. So very well-funded players. And so we were, we were the absolute underdog. Uh, this was, you know, this was, you know, a, it was a long shot if you were to look at it. If you were to stop and take inventory of where we were when we started and then, you know, who we were going up against, it was, it was a complete David and Goliath story. And when we, you know, when we looked at the market, there was one thing, this one insight that I had. And there was, I remember hearing this quote from a friend of mine. He said, if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. And I, I just love that because, you know, I felt like we were either going to get swallowed up or we we're going to have to, you know, do, you know, do some, do some, some work here. And so at a very kind of early entry into the market, despite having, you know, this massive gap in revenue and marketing budget and everything else, I, I knew that we would need to, to carve out a position and then, and then try to, you know, the industrial logic of consolidating this business was very clear to me because you look around the world, you know, you look at Spain, you know, with Elista and, and, you know, otro, you know, otros players, you look at Australia, you know, you look at Germany and the market leader that consolidates the margins for the market leader are extremely healthy. You know, we're talking 50, 60% EBITDA margins. And the second player is, you know, 15, 20%. And then the third player is just nothing. Right. And so you don't want to be the nothing player. And so, you know, I had actually approached uh, the, the market leader at the time when we were very small. I had, um, I remember a conversation with Mickey Malka, who's legendary fintech investor at Ribbit Capital. And he was an angel investor in my company. And he said, Brian, do you think you could, you think you could buy them? And at the time, they were literally 10 times larger than us. So it was just complete, just irrational thinking in my mind. And, but it planted a seed in me and, and thought, you know what, we're going to, we're going to eventually buy these, you know, th this company. And so, you know, we ended up closing the gap over multiple years. Um, the great thing about not having resources is you get really smart. You get very scrappy. And meanwhile, our competitors were, you know, had raised tens of millions of dollars um, before this. And we had, you know, raised, uh, uh, you know, a measly, you know, million dollars in our, in our seed in a series A of three million. So we had not raised a lot of capital until later on in the business. But what I, what I realized is that we could be very scrappy. And instead of buy a bunch of media, we just mastered the art of SEO. So we, we reverse engineered everything that Zillow and Trulia were doing in the US. We, we looked around the world and we essentially just out-executed everybody from the standpoint of customer acquisition. We were able to drive traffic at a much lower cost 
which then enabled us to offer our product at a lower cost, which then enabled us to get more inventory and kind of the network effects of having more inventory, getting more traffic and generating more leads enabled us to carve off a really strong position. And each quarter we were closing the gap on our competitors. It was, you know, th this, this, this 10X gap became a 5X gap, became a 2X gap, became we're down by 30% gap. And so the trajectory of our business uh, by the time we ended up doing the merger uh, was that we were, you know, the market leader in traffic. Uh, we were probably a, a third rising to second in revenue. So we were closing the revenue gap. And, you know, that, that was a moment where, um, you know, we, we realized that, you know, we should, we should make a move. And so I rekindled those initial attempts at trying to, uh, you know, acquire a business um, had, that, had, that had probably been laughed out of the room at, in, when that first, that first conversation and to my surprise, actually in Spain, I was at a conference in, in, in Madrid and the, the CEO of the other company said, hey, do you, do you mind if we talk? And he's like, I was kind of thinking about that conversation, you know, that we, we had in the past and, uh, you know, let's, let's evaluate. And so it was a fascinating thing. I flew back from Madrid, back to San Francisco. And, you know, I ended up having a call with the CEO where we did this really, really cool kind of like exchange where we said, okay, Q1, you know, 2016, what was your number? And we walked through like three years, two or three years of data. And we just shared our numbers every, every quarter. And, uh, and so we just laid it out on the table. And then at that point, it was just a negotiation of, you know, equity swap. Um, and so we ended up uh, almost doing a 50-50. Um, you know, we had a little bit less, but I was willing to give up a little bit of equity for control. And so we ended up, um, you know, putting in uh, our CEO, which was, you know, my partner, at the time, uh, Lucas Vargas, and and we, you know, kind of controlled the operations and the management team, and so that was uh, that was how it all happened, and and uh, you know it, it turned out to be a good deal because we were able to sell it to OLX, uh, you know, there a few years afterwards, and and turn that thing into what was equity value into, into real cash. And what was the amount of that transaction? What ended up being? It was two point nine billion reais, and so when we actually signed the deal, this is emerging market fund. Uh, it was like 740 million, uh, you know, USD. And we learned a lesson where you, you want to lock your transaction into, in dollars and it was in yeah. reais. And so by the time we signed it and, you know, uh, all of the, um, you know, the diligence and the, uh, you know, the, the antitrust review, uh, by the time we were ready to close, that dwindled down to kind of sub- right around 600 million. So we lost about $150 million in, in exchange over that, that time period. Um, and so, yeah, it landed right around 600 million, um, but it was a, a $2.9 billion, billion Hayes transaction. Wow. So how long did it take from the moment that you guys were thinking about, you know, perhaps doing OLX to the moment that it was, that it was closed? Our first conversations, if I can recall with OLX, it was a lot of it was there was a lot of dancing going around. Um, there it was I would say about a year until we kind of nailed down the terms of it, and then another six months to kind of finalize the transaction. Um, so it was it was a good eighteen month um, process, I'd say, and it was Got very it. it was very 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 hectic because at that time to provide a little bit more color, we had just executed this merger, and this merger was very hard because you take two, you know, it's like you're merging Real Madrid and Barcelona, right? Like 
like these are two competitors. They've they kind of you know been going at it, you know, and there was a lot of redundancy on the team, right? You know, like who's gonna who's gonna play what position? And you know, we were probably both overstaffed because we had been you know racing and, and growing, and so we both had about six hundred people. You know, I think it was eleven hundred total, and so we ended up having to let about four hundred people go, four hundred fifty people go, and you can imagine how that affects the you know the revenue. How do you extract the value from both platforms? And so we we had been growing very consistently over that, you know, the last kind of three, four years. And it wasn't until post-merge that we had our first kind of flat and even a negative quarter, just as we were kind of trying to consolidate value. And um, right around that time, you may recall, but SoftBank just happens to pop in Latin America and say, oh, we've got this truckload of money that we're about to dump on the market. And I remember basically getting the impression that they were wanting to invest about $250 million in one of the players. And we didn't really, we weren't really looking for money. We were looking to build more, a more profitable business, but we also didn't want our competitors collecting that $250 million because that would, you know, strengthen our, the, the, the competitive landscape. And so we went out and kind of ran through a process. Um, you know, I, I had uh, lots of talks with the SoftBank team and, and other but given that the growth trajectory was not as exciting at the time because we were going through this merger and we were seen as kind of the incumbent at that point out of the classifieds play. So we ended up trying to balance the a fundraising with a, you know, with a, with a transaction. And ultimately, OLX, you know, made a, a fairly good offer and we decided to, to, to exit the business, which I think was probably the right thing. Timing wise, we might have waited for another year and probably, you know, been in a better position because 2021 was quite a, you know, quite a boom year, but you, you can't look back and, and, you know, try to optimize in, in, in retrospect. Now, obviously, you know, incredible outcome, you know, unbelievable journey uh, with, with, with Viva Real and then Grupo Zap and then the acquisition with, with OLX. Now, you know, what you're doing is, is, is super exciting too. So, so tell us about what you're up to with Latitude. Alejandro, you, you know, this firsthand, it is, so painful. It is so lonely to be a founder and it's just so damn hard. And so when I, you know, I, I went through many a metamorphosis as a founder, many sleepless nights, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. And when I, when I think about my journey, you know, I, I when I was waiting for antitrust to, uh, to approve our deal, I had no control over the process, right? Because here I am, you know, just waiting for the government to figure this out. And so in order to distract myself, what I ended up doing was I just put my, my energy out there and I said, if you're an early stage founder in LATAM, I've been building in the region for over a decade. I made every mistake in the book. Hit me up, I'll, 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 you know, I'll help you out. And so this is you know, the summer of 2020 and I ended up having 150 Zoom calls over that summer with early stage founders. And some were getting, you know, had term sheets pulled, some were, you know, worried about the, the, you know, the future of what was going to happen. Um, some were just starting. And I, in those calls, there's two things that jumped out at me. One, the incredible talent and ambition of this vintage of new founders compared to when I started. And then secondly, despite this very sophisticated operating capacity, vision, you know, execution, there was still a massive gap in understanding some very fundamental things that I picked up along the way of my journey. 
And so what we did was we, you know, I partnered with uh, Yuri Danilchenko and Gina Gotthilf. Yuri's the CTO, Gina's the COO. Uh, both have career and you know in scaling and in tech, um, you know, in Latin America and the U.S. And you know, the, we started putting our heads together. It's how can we reduce friction for these founders? How can we help this next generation founders? Because there's one thing that we know that entrepreneurship is one of the major, one of the most powerful levers for economic progress and social mobility. And we're a big believer in the region. We've been living in the region for a long time. And so we kind of put our heads together and we started, you know, creating resources for founders. We started hosting these live sessions on everything from, you know, how to, how to raise capital to, you know, how to build a product and engineering team to how to use PR for growth. And to our surprise, you know, we, we, we talked to a lot of founders that were just loving what we were doing and they were feeling really appreciative. And we had this real give first mentality. We generate value for these, these folks. And so that kind of evolved organically into a cohort based system. So we, we ended up having our first cohort, cohort zero, it was about 40 founders. And we, you know, we brought on a few different speakers. We had, you know, Q and A's, we had, you know, mentor sessions and, you know, the founders also connected with each other. So we kind of manufactured this serendipity and we realized we were onto something. And so we replicated that and we kind of institutionalized that and organized that. And so we built this cohort based, uh, you know, call it an education system, you know, kind of a community. And so far we've had about 1500 founders go through our program in the last two years. They've collectively raised uh, $800 million in venture capital. And these are pre-seed and seed founders that have gone on to raise, you know, significant, um, you know, rounds from there. And, you know, we did this equity free. We did equity free because we didn't want adverse selection and we wanted the very best founders to want to be part of it. So um, we've, we've drawn on some of the best founders. And then what happened is after we built this kind of community, and I'm a big believer in building community, I think community is the new lean startup. First, you build the community, then you listen to the community, and then you solve problems for the community. So the, the fast follow on this, uh, besides the investing that I was already doing as an angel for the last kind of, you know, call it five, six, seven years, you know, when I had some liquidity at Viveral, besides the money, I, I realized that there's just so much stuff that gets in the way to, for you to, to scale your company. I mean, you're disadvantaged in Latin America from the start. If you want to spin up a company, you know, you've got to, you know, you're going to either make the same mistake I made because I was ill-informed and it wasn't popular back then, but I created a C-Corp for our company. And this C-Corp resulted in us paying over $100 million in capital gains taxes in the U.S., despite having zero operating in the U.S. And so I learned the hard way that you've got to have the right corporate structure. And so after talking to all these founders and having me spun up a bunch of companies and invested in other companies, uh, I realized that all of the venture funds were investing in a Cayman holding company as the, the primary, you know, uh, you know, mechanism for receiving capital from venture. And, and given that I had just spun up a company and, and paid 35, 40, $50,000 to have this more complex structure to receive venture capital, I, it really annoyed me as a founder, you know, just such a mundane, uh, you know, just kind of frivolous activity to, to learn how to, to, to navigate these waters. So we ended up automating this company formation process to spin up a Cayman holding company, a Delaware LLC and a local operating company so that founders can be venture ready. And so we, we save founders, you know, 5X on their, you know, on their formation and we make sure that's set up so that 
venture funds um, you know, are, are kind of ready to, to put the capital in. So that is the first series of products. The vision is to become the platform or the operating system for venture-backed companies in Latin America. So I'm going to stop and pause there because I named two things, the community, the products, and then the last thing is the fund. And capital is the, the last remaining component to the, you know, the, the gap that we want to fill. So we have a fund as well. well. Well, obviously, you know, life, you know, it's all about the intersection between people and capital. So um, I think that nothing like creating ecosystem and, and obviously, you know, what you're doing there is going to allow to do that, which is very much needed. So I guess the question here, you know, to, to, to finalize in our time together is, you know, if you had the opportunity of getting into a time machine and going back in time and being able to have a chat with your younger self, you know, maybe is that the... Uh, you know, uh, younger Brian that is now an English teacher and figuring out, you know, the business side. And if you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger self and being able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? It's a great question. Uh, and the, what comes to mind immediately, and I'll try not to censor my thoughts to make it sound more, you know, a certain way and just try to be super authentic in my response. I mean, I think that going back to something that I said about how lonely and how difficult the journey is, I think that the amount of just suffering that I probably put myself through uh, of just, you know, the, the sleepless nights and the, just the, the, the size of the concern that I had when things weren't working. I think that when you're able to think long-term and I have the benefit of, of hindsight now that I'm building a new company, and you're able to think in decades rather than quarters. Of course, you need a sense of urgency to get things done because nothing happens without just massive sense of urgency and hustle. But I think that taking a longer view and, and, and being able to kind of think about things in, in, you know, from a, a longer time period provides massive benefits to you um, because the problems are never as big as you think. The moments of achievement are never quite as important as you think. It's somewhere in the middle. And I think being able to calm myself down, I mean, look, it, you know, I, this is a bit of a taboo subject, but, you know, I mean, I had, you know, more than one panic attack running my company, you know? And, you know, in one of those cases, I ended up in the hospital because I thought I was having a heart attack. And I think that, you know, that's one thing that is um, the mental health piece. We could have our whole conversation on that. And I cover a little bit of that in my book, uh, Viva the Entrepreneur which, you know, I broke it into three sections. One is like the personal, like how to deal with the personal stuff. Uh, the second one is the business and the operation. The third one is the kind of uh, external funding and, and, you know, kind of board, et cetera. And when I, when I think about this, you know, I'm, I'm way more Zen than I used to be. Um, and and by, by no means, I would never describe myself as Zen as a person because I'm very high energy. You can probably hear it when you, you hear me talking. I'm, I'm, super passionate about what I'm saying. But at the same time, perspective is amazing. When you, when you know, and you've been through it, and you realize that like, okay, you know, there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I, I know it. It's not a train. It's not going to come smash me over. And you're able to maintain that kind of optimism and knowing that, you know, there's going to be a brighter day when you're in the middle of the storm. I think that that uh, would save me incredible amounts of just being distraught and, you know, kind of my, my 
you know, my, my, the feeling of not knowing and, and being concerned and, and, and filled, filled with self-doubt. So I think all of those things, I have the massive privilege on the second time, you know, this, this, this new journey to be able to take a little bit of that wisdom and, and be a little more confident in myself, be able to uh, embrace the fact that like, yeah, it's going to suck, but learn to love it and you'll get through it and just, you know, stay optimistic about it. And so that would be my advice to be, would be, you know, chill the fuck out a little bit and, and, you know, and just take a couple deep breaths and it's probably not as bad as you think. I love it. So Brian, for the people that are listening that would want to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? You can hit me up on Twitter uh, at Brian Reckworth. If you send me a message on LinkedIn, just make sure to reference uh, the Dealmakers podcast because otherwise it'll be one of the a thousand people that spam me on LinkedIn. And uh, you know, don't don't be that guy where, where that I was when I was trying to raise capital, uh, sending generic messages. And yeah, I mean, it, it follow along. I, I've actually got a podcast too. It's called Latitude Podcast. So if there's anyone interested in LatAM, uh, it's a it's a great resource for founders, investors. You know, we interview the top founders. So I'm not quite at the deal makers level yet, but we're we're working on it. And listen, Alejandro, I think it's amazing what you've been doing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of parallels with with latitude. And so I'm sure that there's, you know, incredible opportunities for us to collaborate and, uh, you know, share, share knowledge. And in fact, that is the center point of what latitude is about. It's about building ecosystems, building value, you know, and, and trying to elevate the next generation of entrepreneurs. And uh, for me in particular in LATAM. So cualquier cosa, estamos a la orden. Okay. I love it. I love it. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks a lot for the interview. It's great chat. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.